Good afternoon. <clears throat> I'm uh, Christopher Preble. I'm the Director of Foreign Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. Thank you all for attending. Uh, welcome also to those of you watching on the Internet at www.cato.org. Um, I want to say a special thanks to the Plowshares Fund for their support of Cato's research on nuclear nonproliferation, uh, including this event. Let me also thank our fine conference staff uh, who do so much behind the scenes to make these uh, events a success. And I do want to extend special thanks to Charles Zacabe, who helped to organize this event and for convening such a distinguished and knowledgeable panel of experts. Uh, for those of you here in the uh, FAI uh, auditorium, please silence your phones out of courtesy to your fellow attendees. Um, North Korea has been acting in an increasingly provocative manner, uh, threatening nuclear tests, imprisoning two uh, U.S. reporters captured on the North's border with China, lost, launching missiles into the Pacific Ocean, and otherwise unsettling the region and the world. Kim Jong-il's regime has been directly implicated in nuclear proliferation to Syria and is suspected of selling or leaking nuclear enrichment technology to other states and potentially non-state actors. Meanwhile, the North Korean people live on the edge of starvation and destitution, deprived of even the most basic of human rights. What can be done? War is unacceptable. Increased sanctions seem unlikely to work. And so far, diplomacy has proved ineffective. Does working in closer cooperation with China offer a better option? Beijing has the most clout in Pyongyang, but has to this point been unwilling to use its influence. Could U.S. policymakers convince uh, China to, make, to take a more active role, perhaps even working to oust the murderous regime of Kim Jong-il? What arguments would be most compelling for Beijing and what incentives might Washington offer to win China's cooperation? These are just some of the questions that our panelists will address today. Let me introduce them to you in the order they will speak. Our first speaker is my friend and mentor, Ted Galen Carpenter, Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. He is the author of eight books on international affairs, including Smart Power, Toward a Prudent Foreign Policy for America, America's Coming War with China, A Collision Course Over Taiwan, The Korean Conundrum, America's Troubled Relations with North and South Korea, co-authored with Doug Bondow, and A Search for Enemies, America's Alliances After the Cold War. He's edited another 10 books, including China's Future, Constructive Partner or Emerging Threat, and Delusions of Grandeur, the United Nations and Global Intervention. And he's published more than 400 articles and policy studies. He's a frequent guest on radio and television around the world. He received his Ph.D. in U.S. diplomatic history from the University of Texas. Our second speaker today is Scott Snyder. He's the director of the Center for Korea Policy at the Asia Foundation and a senior associate at Pacific Forum, CSIS. He lived in Seoul, South Korea as Korea representative of the Asia Foundation from 2000 to 2004. Previously, he served as program officer in the research and studies program of the U.S. Institute of Peace and is acting director of the Asia Society's Contemporary Affairs Program. He is the author of several books, including most recently, China's Rise and the Two Koreas, Politics, Economics, Security, published this year by Lynn Reiner, as well as Paved with Good Intentions, the NGO Experience in North Korea, co-edited with Gordon Flake, and Negotiating on the Edge, North Korean Negotiating Behavior. 
Schneider received his BA from Rice University and an MA from the Regional Studies uh, East Asia program at Harvard. Our third speaker is Larry Allen Nitsch, a, a specialist in Asian affairs with the Congressional Research Service Library of Congress, where he specializes in U.S. security policy in East Asia and the Western Pacific, political conditions of the countries in the region, and foreign policy developments within the region. In addition to his reports published by CRS and congressional committees, Dr. Nix has written articles for a number of journals and uh, newspapers in the United States and the Asia Pacific. He's spoken at numerous conferences and been interviewed widely, both uh, here and in East Asia media outlets. He's a senior advisor on East Asia to the PRS, the Political Risk Services Group, and a member of the editorial board of New Asia, published by the New Asia Research Institute in Seoul, Korea. He received his B.A. in history from Butler University, a Master of Science in Foreign Service from Georgetown, and a Ph.D. in history also from Georgetown. Our fourth and final speaker is Doug Bondow, senior fellow here at Cato, who specializes in foreign policy and civil liberties. Doug has written and edited several books, including Foreign Follies, America's New Global Empire, The Korean Conundrum, which I've already mentioned, he co-written co with Ted, and Tripwire, Korea and U.S. Foreign Policy in a Changed World. He's been widely published, including in such periodicals as Time, Newsweek, Foreign Policy, National Review, and The New Republic, as well as all the leading newspapers, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and many others. He's also appeared on many radio and television programs, including ABC Nightly News, Good Morning America, Nightline, and The Oprah Winfrey Show. He received his B.S. in economics from Florida State University and a J.D. from Stanford University. Uh, without any further ado, please join me in welcoming Ted Carpenter. Thank you very much, Chris. Ever since the latest uh, North Korean nuclear crisis uh, began in t the fall of 2002, there's been a dominant assumption in the policy community in the United States and, and throughout much of East Asia, and that is that whatever hard bargaining the North Koreans might engage in, ultimately they would agree to give up their nuclear program in exchange for concessions from the United States and other relevant parties. The vehicle to achieve this kind of peaceful diplomatic solution eventually became the six-party talks involving not only North Korea and the United States, but also Japan, South Korea, China, and Russia. However, recent North Korean actions have increased doubts about whether it is possible to achieve a, an effective diplomatic solution. Just since April, uh, North Korea uh, engaged in a number of uh, troubling actions, including uh, a long-range test of a ballistic missile, not entirely successful, but still rather worrisome, uh, when the United Nations Security Council issued a largely toothless statement of condemnation, the North used that as a pretext to announce its withdrawal yet again from the six-party talks. That was followed by uh, a nuclear test, the second that North Korea had conducted, the expulsion of international inspectors from the Yongbyon reactor complex, and uh, then uh, the announcement that uh, the North was no longer going to abide 
by the armistice uh, ending the Korean War, and finally, uh, an indication that uh, it was going to test even more missiles, which it did just a matter of uh, a couple weeks ago, this time largely short-range missiles. That uh, series of developments has caused uh, at least some in the U.S. policy community to become much more pessimistic about the prospects for a diplomatic solution. That those of us who had been arguing for years that North Korea might very well be using the six-party talks to stall for time and that Pyongyang was in fact uh, determined to become a nuclear weapons state, that view has become stronger certainly in recent months. The U.S. policy community is not the only one that is becoming a bit more pessimistic. Uh, Chinese officials and scholars are also becoming more pessimistic. That point uh, became graphically clear in my uh, visit and set of meetings in China last month. I've been in China in April of 2008 for a series of meetings, and at that time, the dominant view in China was exactly the same as it was in the United States. Yeah, the North Koreans posture, they engage in very tough bargaining, but ultimately the diplomatic process will work. This time, the change in attitude was palpable. Um, most scholars, the overwhelming majority, in fact, now said, this looks bad. It looks as though the North may, in fact, not be serious about giving up its nuclear program. Those who remained optimistic were very much in the minority this time around. Observers had note, have noted that China is the key to this issue, that China, China has considerable potential leverage. It, after all, provides a large portion of North Korea's food supplies, a large portion of North Korea's energy supplies. This has led some observers to assume that China can dictate an outcome. In fact, uh, New York Times columnist Tom Friedman a few years ago made the rather flippant comment that Beijing could solve the North Korean nuclear crisis with a telephone call. Well, far be it for me to accuse Tom Friedman of oversimplifying highly complex foreign <laughs> policy issues, but it's not quite that simple. China indeed has a lot of leverage. And it's also true that without China's active cooperation, any kind of sanctions regime against North Korea likely have minimal effect. It may inconvenience the regime. It may even cause some pain to the regime, as the financial sanctions that the U.S. pushed with the last round of, of sanctions did. But it, that kind of pain is not likely to be severe enough to cause a significant change in regime behavior. China has the leverage that could cause real pain to Kim Jong-il's government. But China is reluctant to use that leverage. Now, there are multiple reasons for this. Uh, some of the Chinese cite moral reasons, uh, that it would be wrong to betray a friend and longtime ally you get the sense, though, that most Chinese uh, officials and, and scholars are not terribly serious about that one. There are other fears, though, and they are far more serious and far more genuine. 
China fears that if it really puts the screws to Pyongyang, there could be a number of very bad consequences to China. One is that faced with truly onerous sanctions, Kim Jong-il might conclude that his regime is on its way out and he has nothing to lose. He might then do something terribly rash, including the possibility of triggering another war on the Korean Peninsula. Another possibility, even if Kim doesn't do anything crazy, is that sanctions of that sort could cause the North Korean state to suddenly implode. That would result in chaos and a surge of refugees, perhaps even several million refugees, over the Yalu River into northeastern China, something clearly Chinese officials do not want to face. Moreover, even if an implosion did not occur, even if there was a more gradual unraveling of the North Korean regime, that could still lead to unpleasant results from China's standpoint, including the likelihood of a united, non-communist Korea allied with the United States and with a probable U.S. military presence on the peninsula. Some of the Chinese that I talked to, uh, both on the 2008 visit and this one, said, look, we need a geostrategic buffer between our homeland and the U.S. sphere of influence in Northeast Asia. Interestingly enough, though, there was a split in opinion, uh, particularly this time. Some younger Chinese scholars in particular said, the whole concept of buffer states is obsolete. If the United States wants to attack us, it can attack us with weapons from a great distance. It doesn't need forward-deployed bases on the Korean Peninsula. So who cares if the U.S. uh, has an alliance with South Korea? But that view is still very much a minority view. In any case, China remains profoundly reluctant to use the leverage that it has. Kim Jong-il's apparent ill health, including speculation in the South Korean press now that he has pancreatic cancer, will likely reinforce China's reluctance to put pressure on the regime at this point in time. The default policy option for Beijing will likely be to wait and see what a successor regime looks like, and then maybe even try to influence the nature of that succession. How do we get China to be more decisive and proactive? I think the United States has to take two crucial steps. The first step is to to lay the foundation for a more proactive China policy by shifting U.S. policy toward North Korea. What I'm suggesting is that Washington offer serious bilateral talks with Pyongyang. China's position has been all along that while the six-party talks are useful, most of what North Korea has as a grievance involves the United States, and only the U.S. can resolve these issues. So bilateral talks are essential. I think the U.S. should give in on that point. And with regard to those bilateral talks, it is time to stop dancing around the issues 
and propose a comprehensive bargain. The North Koreans say they fear U.S. Uh, the U.S. hostile policies, hostile intent. Fine. Say we're willing to give Pyongyang a written non-aggression pact for whatever non-aggression pacts are worth. North Korea says, look, we want a peace treaty formally ending the state of war on the Korean Peninsula. Our response would be fine. It is time to do that. Replace the armistice with a more formal agreement. The North says it wants full diplomatic recognition from the United States, an exchange of ambassadors and so on. Fine. This is something we should have done many, many years ago in any case. After all, during the Cold War, the United States, China, and the Soviet Union talked about cross-recognition. In other words, that the United States would recognize North Korea, China, and the Soviet Union would recognize South Korea. End of the Cold War... China and Russia promptly recognized South Korea. The United States still has not recognized the North Korean government. It's time to end that obsolete policy and propose so explicitly. And then finally, the North says you have all these economic sanctions that has caused dire poverty in our country. Of course, those sanctions are a minor, if not trivial, reason for the poverty in North Korea the economically illiterate policies of Kim's regime and what's responsible for that poverty, but let's say, fine, anything that's not directly militarily relevant, we will lift the sanctions. We're proposing to offer everything, in other words, that Pyongyang says that it wants. In exchange, we should insist, as we have, on a complete, verifiable, and irreversible end to North Korea's nuclear program. And that specifically means a thorough system of robust on-demand inspections. Now, if Pyongyang balks at that deal, then it is virtually certain that it is determined to become a nuclear weapons power, and all the negotiations are just so much theater. Most important, a proposed comprehensive bargain would convince the Chinese that negotiations with the North are probably futile and that another policy has to be adopted. Right now, China does not believe that the U.S. has gone, quote, the extra mile, unquote, to solve the North Korean nuclear issue through diplomacy. By making the offer of a comprehensive bargain, we would, I think, end that objection. The second step in getting China to be more proactive, perhaps even to consider moving to bring down Kim Jong-il's regime, is to provide sufficient concessions to Beijing to drastically alter the incentive structure in terms of making its policy decisions. My colleague Doug Bandau will cover that issue in his presentation. Thank you. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here. Thank you to the Cato Institute for uh, inviting me. Uh, and I think that Ted got us off to a very interesting start. Uh, I'm going to try to do uh, four things in my presentation. Um, uh, first, I want to give a couple of um, 
uh, general principles by which uh, the Chinese uh, have um, approached their relationship with uh, North Korea and the Korean Peninsula. Uh, second, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, impact of the missile and nuclear tests earlier this year on China's position. Uh, uh, third, I want to talk about how I think China's policy may be shifting in response to those uh, activities. And fourth, I'll talk a little bit about how the U.S. might be able to influence uh, China uh, in its approach to North Korea. Um, and generally speaking, I would say that my approach is focusing less on trying to find a way of negotiating a bargain with North Korea at this stage than on thinking about ways to shape the environment for a negotiated solution. Uh, and that, I think, is an area where uh, U.S.-China coordination would be critical. Um, we all know that China shares a border with North Korea, and as a result, China has a direct uh, interest in promoting regional stability. Uh, we've seen China take a more active role in dealing with the peninsula uh, in the 2000s compared to the first crisis in the 1990s. Uh, in the context of the six-party talks, they've attempted to play a host and mediator role and an intermediary, in intermediary role in six-party talks. But what we really haven't seen, I think, is the Chinese taking ownership of the issues that are being discussed in the context of the six-party talks. Uh, I think it's important to ask, why is this the case? And in my view, um, China's traditional ideological and geographic proximity to North Korea has created a kind of blind spot on the part of the Chinese about North Korean intentions. Uh, Ted described some of the revelations that it seems that some of the Chinese uh, policy analysts have been coming to as a result of the most recent North Korean provocations. And in fact, what we see as a result of those provocations is that the North Korean actions have been much more effective in convincing uh, the Chinese policy community uh, that they may need to consider a different approach than years of Bush administration efforts to try to convince the Chinese to work together on North Korea. And so now we're at a kind of interesting point where uh, presumably there is, well, it, it appears that there is an active policy debate in China about how to deal with North Korea. Uh, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how that un unfolds. Um, I think that as we look at the 2006 and 2009 tests, there are just a few observations that I would like to make about the difference in China's uh, approach. Uh, one, uh, it seems to me that the actual substance of the response uh, in terms of the formal government statements was uh, pretty much the same in 2006 and 2009. Uh, but there was one difference in context uh, that I think is important to note, and that is that uh, in 2006, we're at a point where uh, the Bush administration was pushing hard on the BDA sanctions, and the Chinese had essentially uh, an excuse to blame the United States uh, for being a part of the problem. Really, with the new administration, um, uh, President Obama never got a chance, really, to do anything related to North Korea, good or bad. And so I think that's a difference in context. Uh, secondly, um, it was very interesting in 2006, the Chinese sent an envoy to Washington first, and then Moscow, and then Pyongyang, in order to try to reestablish a basis for diplomatic talks. Uh, this time, we haven't seen yet uh, any kind of public special envoy going from China to North Korea. 
Instead, just last week, we saw uh, the, the head of the, the Chinese head of the six-party talks, Vice Minister Wu Dawei, coming to uh, the capitals of the other five. Clearly, the Chinese are not embracing a five-party formula, but I do think that they are acknowledging that there is a process uh, involving coordination among other members of the six-party talks that is going to be necessary in order to change the context. Um, with regard to um, factors affecting China's perspective on this issue, it seems to me that uh, China has a fundamental contradiction of its own in terms of its overall foreign policy versus how it has traditionally been dealing with North Korea. And this comes out, I think, in many different ways. Uh, one that Ted, I think, highlighted is that right now there's incredible pessimism in the Chinese community about the prospects for diplomacy, and yet we see the Chinese government uh, officially uh, saying that they're going to pursue diplomacy, uh, that they're committed to using the sanctions as a way of getting um, uh, the uh, parties back to six-party talks. Um, there are many other ways in which uh, this contradiction is also clear. China's promoting economic integration in the region. North Korea is uh, resisting that. China wants regional stability. North Korea is destabilizing in ways that require China to consider, consider intervention versus non-interference. Uh, and China is increasingly supporting a status quo in the area of non-proliferation, and North Korea is challenging it. Uh, the contradictions have grown so obvious uh, that I noted uh, in recent Chinese reports that there was a Chinese individual making an online application to the National People's Congress requesting that they um, uh, annul the 1961 security agreement with North Korea uh, because he says that it's unconstitutional. So we see public action coming into this issue as well in interesting ways. Uh, and, of course, many people have quoted... Uh, recent surveys suggesting that uh, Chinese specialists are uh, more supportive of sanctions. Now, what is an approach that the U.S. can take in, 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 uh, in uh, dealing with China and possibly influencing um, China's position toward North Korea? Uh, I believe that uh, the BDA case actually offers us uh, some instruction in this regard. And what I thought was interesting about the Banco Delta Asia case in which the U.S. Treasury issued a warning to Chinese banks about this Macau-based bank, Banco Delta Asia, was that, in fact, the U.S. imposed no sanctions. China did all of the heavy lifting. Why? Because the issue was framed as a choice between China's interests in the international community and China's interests in North Korea. And the choice was very clear. And it seems to me that the U.N. Security Council resolution right now is also framing a similar choice for China, and that now is the time to try to um, encourage China to live up to the obligations of a Security Council resolution that it, in fact, has been a part of creating. Um, uh, the, the, the framework has been created, and now is the time to try to convince the Chinese to implement that framework. I think that there are also some major obstacles to moving forward in terms of U.S.-China cooperation. One is that I think that in order for there to be a true strategic conversation between the United States and China on this issue, uh, the Chinese um, continue to have a level of mistrust about the United States. So it seems to me that the U.S. needs to make a clear statement in terms of its own vision about the future of um, uh, the peninsula. Uh, and then... Um, 
Uh, I'll conclude uh, with this uh, observation, and that is that uh, uh, the U.S.-China relationship right now, as we all know, is overloaded with many issues. Uh, and uh, I think that it's going to be uh, very challenging to put this at the top of the agenda. Uh, and unless it's at the top of the agenda, I don't know if it's going to be possible for the United States and China to come together in a way that would enable us to change the strategic context uh, for North Korea's own choices. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. And let me thank uh, Cato for asking me to uh, uh, speak to you today. I'll begin with my usual disclaimer that I'm giving you personal views and no official view of the Congressional uh, Research Service in my remarks today. It seems to me, in, in lo looking at what Ted and Scott have said, that you know we see China with a number of different priorities and perceptions of its interest in North Korea that are different from the United States. Uh, and I certainly agree with that. Uh, the buffer state concept, for example, that uh, uh, Ted uh, mentioned certainly differs from our perception and our interest. Uh, this different set of priorities and interests have affected, it seems to me, how China has viewed the nuclear issue, certainly from the beginning of the six-party talks. And I would argue that in terms of China's objectives and strategy and tactics in the six-party talks, there has been a lot of consistency on the part of how the Chinese government has dealt with this right up until the present time. Now, granted, there is diversity of views in China uh, and probably some debate within the Chinese leadership about dealing with North Korea. But I think we have to be a little cautious in taking too much stock in the very strongly anti-North Korean views that we hear from many of the renowned Chinese scholars and think tank people and not go too far in, in interposing that as the view or the policy of the Chinese government itself. Now, I have felt for a long time that China's objectives towards the nuclear issue had three basic elements to it. The first being that China really has given, despite the official rhetoric, little priority to the goal of a complete denuclearization of North Korea. I think the Chinese government's view has been this is something for the far distant future and will not be achieved uh, within the near or even intermediate term. Therefore, China has focused much of its diplomacy within the, the so-called six-party context, or I would say actually three-party context, U.S., North Korea, and China, on the goal of limiting the plutonium program, shutting down the Yangbyon facility. 
China's view, it seems to me, has been to shut down, contain the North Korean plutonium program and put North Korea's other nuclear programs and and activities in what I would call a box of secrecy that or uncertainty that, that we could all live with in terms of not knowing what they're doing or being uncertain what their other nuclear activities have been. In other words, don't ask, don't tell. What you don't know won't hurt you. Now, in terms of strategies and tactics within the six-party or what I believe has been really a three-party context, this is what I think the Chinese uh, have done and are still basically following. First, they have opposed sanctions in North Korea, as both Ted and Scott have pointed out, uh, including up to now non-enforcement of United Nations sanctions on North Korea. Instead, when North Korea has become very truculent within the six-party talks, including their two year-long boycotts of 2004 and 2005, China has thrown out the sweeteners to North Korea, economic and financial benefits to North Korea to encourage a little bit more North Korean positive participation in the talks. China has consistently, from day one, urged the Bush administration to water down U.S. requirements and demands in North Korea to move the Bush administration from the so-called CVID formula, complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization, to a focus on shutting down Yangbian containing the plutonium program. And China, as Ted and Scott have pointed out, have basically favored and have urged the Bush administration to negotiate bilaterally with North Korea. China has not been a real stickler on the six-party talks being the principal forum for actual negotiations. Now, what for the United States, it seems to me, are the implications of all of this in the present situation. The U.S., in looking for an enforcement of U.N. sanctions, really has to, again, come to grips with the competing objectives of, on on the one hand, pressuring North Korea to resume nuclear talks and to negotiate nuclear compromises on the one hand, versus this goal that keeps creeping back into U.S. policy, as Ted alluded to, of isolating North Korea, bringing about regime change. Now, if we want to get China to become more active in enforcing U.S. U.N. sanctions, and that's going to be a tough task, but here are some things we conceivably could do. It seems to me in seeking a Chinese commitment to enforce key U.N. sanctions, the United States is also going to have to negotiate simultaneously with China on the conditions under which sanctions would be relaxed. We need to agree with China on the relaxation of of sanctions, the conditions, 
in conjunction with an agreement under which China will act more forcefully to enforce sanctions. If North Korea agrees to talks, to what degree should we relax sanctions at that point? Should we relax all sanctions with China or keep some of them but relax others? This is the mix of issues that I think we have to deal with in discussing enforcement of sanctions with China. We need to constantly raise with China the issue of what they are doing in terms of enforcing sanctions. Uh, We need to emphasize the specific sanctions that we think are important for China to act on. Financial sanctions have already been mentioned, but the other one that I think is absolutely crucial if sanctions are going to put any meaningful pressure on North Korea is Chinese action to shut down the air traffic between Tehran and Pyongyang, which is North Korea's major element of its proliferation policy. Also, how far do we go in pressuring China or threatening Chinese banks to start doing some of the things that Scott alluded to during the 2006-2007 period? Do we have the clout now with Chinese banks to put that kind of pressure back on them now, given the fact that these Chinese banks are the ones who are lending the United States billions of dollars every month as part of this new creditor-debtor relationship that the United States now has with China. It seems to me that a more potentially positive strategy might be related to what the United States could do subtly and quietly with China regarding what I believe is North Korea's real area of vulnerability to pressure, and that is food aid and North Korea's food situation. There has been a pattern since the 1990s in which the North Koreans, when their food aid situation, when their food situation got quite bad and began to threaten the elite in the military, the North Koreans became a little bit more reasonable and moderate in dealing with the United States in dealing with South Korea because they needed outside food aid. And there has been a pattern, several episodes of this, that we have seen in the past. Another severe food shortage in North Korea could turn North Korea toward renewing nuclear talks and perhaps adopting less severe negotiating positions and resuming talks with South Korea. The food situation might be heading in that direction, but I think we have to see what the results of the harvest this late summer and fall will be. U.S. and South Korean food aid programs are suspended. The WFP basically is in uh, a hold situation. North Korea, in terms of outside food assistance, is almost completely dependent on China. Therefore, there are opportunities and advantages for China to subtly reduce food aid to North Korea as a means to pressure North Korea to adopt a more moderate policy on the nuclear issue. Food aid is outside of U.N. sanctions. 
China, therefore, would not necessarily be perceived by this new North Korean collective leadership, which China is trying to influence now, as overtly cooperating with the United States in penalizing North Korea under U.N. sanctions. China has cut food aid before. There are past patterns and fluctuations of Chinese food aid, including lower amounts of food aid in 2008. China can cite to the North Koreans its own food stocks as a reason to cut food aid to North Korea without overtly threatening North Korea with penalties. China's food aid, as far as we know, goes entirely to North Korea's elite and to its military. Thus, cuts in Chinese food aid would hurt North Korea where it would count most and put, it seems to me, some real pressure on North Korea to change its attitude, its current attitude, toward the nuclear talks. We can quietly and subtly remind China of these past patterns of relationships between North Korea's food shortages and its behavior toward the United States and South Korea. And it seems to me we should not immediately respond to any new WFP appeals in and of itself for a renewed U.S. contribution of food aid to the uh, WFP. This sounds harsh to play the food card with North Korea, but it's, I think, our most effective potential point of leverage on North Korea. Now, if negotiations resume, and I am not optimistic about this happening in the near term because I believe the North Korean military now is calling the shots. Uh, on nuclear policy, and the foreign ministry has been pretty much shunted aside in terms of the approach that the foreign ministry wanted to follow. But if negotiations are resumed at some point in the future, it seems to me it is time for the United States to admit that China's view of a limited nuclear settlement, i.e. containing the plutonium program, and may have been and may still be a more realistic objective than negotiating for the complete end of North Korea's nuclear program, especially now that in negotiations for complete denuclearization, if that is what we're talking about, the United States is going to face this very different agenda of North Korea's military that Ted alluded to, uh, when he discussed the idea of a comprehensive package. China and the Obama administration would need to coordinate on negotiating objectives, responding to North Korea's demands, and the timing of and offers of benefits to North Korea. The Obama administration, it seems to me, also would need to press China for prior agreements on imposing penalties on North Korea if North Korea rejects or breaks agreements that both Washington and Beijing have endorsed. The Obama administration also would need to give China an assurance in coordinating a negotiating strategy, an important assurance that the United States would keep its negotiating strategy focused 
on an agreed-upon limited objective rather than intermixing proposals and tactics from the agenda, from the U.S. agenda of seeking total denuclearization of North Korea. And this is where I think the Bush administration went wrong, when it basically had an agreement last year to disable Yang Bian and then brought in this verification issue and these verification demands at the last minute, an issue that really is within the context of seeking a complete denuclearization of North Korea, uh, comprehensive verification, rather than related, importantly, to that limited goal that the Bush administration seemed to have attained of shutting down, of disabling Yang Beyond. And as we know, the verification issue basically wrecked that agreement and wrecked the negotiations last year. China was very critical, and Chinese officials apparently still are critical, of the timing and scope of the Bush administration's verification proposal of last year. Again, after the Bush administration appeared to have wrapped up an agreement for the disablement of Young Beyond. So this is, I think, where we are. These are some things I think we could try with the Chinese. We might be able to achieve some results with the Chinese, but I think our diplomacy is going to have to be pretty sophisticated in dealing with the Chinese in order to get, get the Chinese more on board with us in terms of the means to bring North Korea around towards a different position, a more moderate position on the nuclear issue. I'll stop here. Thank you. Well, it's a great pleasure for me to appear with uh, the panel today. I mean, Ted is a friend of a very Ted is a friend of very long standing, and I've known uh, Scott and Larry as well for many years working on these issues. And I appreciate the turnout that we have here in the auditorium. It attests to the seriousness of this issue. The Obama administration came into office preaching change, but what is found on the Korean Peninsula really is no change at all. And the question of what to do about Korea, I think, is going to be one of the most important issues that it faces and one of the most difficult issues that it faces. And the question is, is there a role for China? Can we increase that role for China in a world of bad options? You know, Ted described the problem... Now, North Korea strikes me as being a very uh, dangerous and unique mix. We have one of the most brutal, murderous dictatorships around. Indeed, if one looks around, I think it's hard to find a country that's most, more misgoverned, perhaps Burma, perhaps somewhere else, but certainly North Korea would appear to be at the top of that list. At least a half million people probably died of starvation back in the late 1990s. You know, we have a regime that has demonstrated its enormous callousness and willingness to allow its people to suffer. It's been engaging more recently in increasingly provocative behavior. You know, part of that we see internally a crackdown. We see a move back from limited economic reforms. We see at least evidence of crackdown on officials who had been involved in some opening to uh, South Korea and elsewhere. We're seeing the external provocation of both uh, nuclear and missile tests, multiple missile tests, as well as the uh, denunciation of the six-party talks and the armistice agreement, which is kind of, you know, at some level an extraordinary uh, thing to do after a half century. We also have to worry about possible internal instability. 
The uh, obvious illness of Kim, whether it's simply a stroke or whether it's also pancreatic cancer, we don't know. But if one sees the pictures of this man, he's no longer the uh, man with the uh, ample gut and bouffant hair, but somebody quite different. The question of the succession, his desire to install his uh, 26-year-old son as uh, the next uh, leader, the, the cute leader as some people have referred to him as. It's hard to see how that can occur if uh, the great dear leader doesn't live for a while. As Larry mentioned, the role of the military. You know, at a time of instability and potential collective leadership, the military is likely to have a much greater role, and certainly some of what we see would uh, you know, suggest that this is playing to the military in terms of, if not trying to win their agreement for the rise of Kim Jong-un, you know, perhaps simply uh, within a, what is really has become a collective leadership situation, and the potential for factional fighting, you know, the, uh, the, where North Korea goes is very much in question. And there are a few good answers. We've been trying diplomacy, you know, not uh, perhaps the, the best, uh, you know, organized at times and the best pursued. Nevertheless, diplomacy seems to have reached a dead end. You know, there's still hope, I suppose, that uh, we can get a diplomatic outcome. Nevertheless, every step North Korea takes back pushes a diplomatic solution further away and makes it less likely that we can reach a diplomatic solution that everyone will be pleased with. The more threats, the more tests, et cetera, the harder it is to come up with an outcome that we're likely to want. Sanctions remain, you know, problematic so long as uh, China is not willing to fully enforce sanctions. The, uh, what we see is a regime that's clearly willing to allow its people to suffer. So the question of how much suffering is it willing to uh, undertake, the real question, I think, comes in, the question of trying to hit the elite, the nomenclatura, the military, the, uh, the party apparatchiks, and that requires more direct action than we've seen so far. The question of whether sanctions can work even if enforced, we don't know. But until they are fully enforced, we, don't, we won't have the test. And a military option is a very bad one. It's hard for me to see how any military option would not result in the likely full-scale war, given the position of Seoul close to North Korea. The likelihood would be hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of South Korean casualties. It would be a catastrophe, even though the North would lose. It's the kind of thing that all of us uh, would be losers in. So the question then comes of, is there a China option? Is there something that we can do with China? Now, the degree of Chinese influence you know, in Pyongyang, in North Korea, <laughs> is not entirely clear, I think, to most of us. It may not be certain even to uh, China in terms of exactly what its clout is with whom uh, in Pyongyang. And uh, obviously, China has been hesitate, hesitant to use the clout that it has. Part of that is a historical and ideological identification, though I think those ties clearly are fraying. We see in North Korea a lot of criticism of the Chinese policy, even uh, you know, moving away from what they see as true socialism. There's some argument that they planned the July 1st, I guess it was put over because of weather, missile tests as an affront to China because July 1st was the uh, foundation day of the uh, CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. There are also legal and political ties, particularly uh, treaty-based, and also some concerns have been expressed in Beijing about the importance of credibility, standing by one's ally. This is, you know, uh, arguments we actually hear in the United States at times as well. On the other hand, one can certainly see how you know, treaty uh, guarantees have limits, especially when, when the country one is guaranteeing involved in, is involved in extraordinarily provocative behavior. That uh, you know, there's no, uh, no problem, I would argue, with the treaty guarantor in that case of wanting to change the behavior of the country to which it had increased, <coughs> it had provided uh, uh, guarantees. Indeed, one could argue that given the unique circumstances, that it would enhance Chinese credibility to other friends by uh, that uh, it's showing it has a willingness to give up its guarantees at some point, but otherwise it stands by them very clearly.
Clearly in China there's a fear of a collapse of North Korea, which could have enormous consequences, refugees, disorder, possible military conflict, factional fighting, any number of things. Uh, you know, certainly very understandable that China fears these things. It's not something which uh, Westerners should just dismiss as being unimportant. Nevertheless, the cost today of North Korea is quite high. I mean, there's an economic cost to China right now of the aid that it provides, as well as the potential of a collapse now. And even more important, I think, from China's standpoint, the fear that an American administration will grow tired of waiting and might be willing to use military action that the view in Washington might be different than the view in Seoul and in Beijing about the outcome of military action. China cannot assume that. That would not be a possibility. And again, the consequences would be catastrophic for all confirmed, including China. <coughs> China also, I think, has an opportunity of benefiting from change in North Korea. China's uh, trade with South Korea is about 60 times that of North Korea. A prosperous, more reasonable North Korea offers obvious, enormous economic benefits to China that uh, you know, for, from a Chinese standpoint over the long term, a reunified Korea would be an important trading partner and a very important economic partner. China also fears political consequences, understandably. You know, to some degree, the current system seems built for Chinese benefit. That is, it has an ally in North Korea, which basically puts the United States and South Korea in China's debt. Both uh, you know, Seoul and Washington feel the need to go to Beijing and say, please help us out. Please put pressure on North Korea. Please get them to the talks. Please do this. Please do that. It certainly helps give China some leverage. On the other hand, you know, China fears a united Korea that's allied with the United States. And if one assumes some kind of collapse or reunification, the outcome presumably would be a largely pro-American government governing the peninsula. But I think what's critical here in the United States uh, you know, can make this point is that while U.S. friendship and U.S. economic ties to a united Korea are inevitable, American military presence on the Korean Peninsula is not. <laughs> and certainly China could find, uh, I think, uh, be assuaged of its, these concerns if it understood that the U.S. did not plan on trying to maintain bases and essentially an alliance structure on China's border. Some Chinese may no longer care about buffer state status. They're certainly correct that the U.S. has a lot of means to attack whether or not it has bases on the country's border. Nevertheless, one can understand why that may bother policymakers in Beijing. So the question then becomes is how does one change China's perception of the issue and change its willingness to apply pressure? And I think that requires convincing China. And I do emphasize the word convince. There are Americans who apparently believe that the U.S. Near, mer merely needs snap its fingers or pick up the phone, I suppose, to convince Beijing to pick up the phone to uh, Pyongyang, which, as Larry mentioned to me, is probably not working at the moment, <laughs> that uh, it's going to require more than just U.S. diktat to uh, you know, get China to... Uh, to help. I think the first is to try to work with China and Japan to come up with a, a unified strategy in terms of how to try to apply pressure on North Korea. The more coordination, the better. I think Larry is absolutely right that we've worked at cross purposes in terms of goals, which has stood in the way of getting an agreement. The centerpiece of policy should be uh, the role of the PRC. I think that means starting out with very strong diplomatic pressure, graduated economic pressure, and potentially including, depending upon what uh, the capabilities are in Beijing, of trying to be active within Pyongyang itself to have an impact on the regime and the governing structure. <laughs> At a time of stress, it may very well be that China has an opportunity to have an influence there that would be helpful, delivering a, a less provocative, less dangerous regime. 
The goal then would be first to change policy, and on that I think it's critically important, as Larry indicated, the U.S. and China in particular have to get on the same page as to what the policy goals would be. It would be used in terms of uh, both applying and relieving sanctions and also if the other actions were going to be taken. And the second goal, if possible, would be wonderful to overthrow the regime if possible, but recognizing the difficulty of that, and that certainly wouldn't be the centerpiece, I think, certainly not of announced policy. In the recognition of the fact that this strategy, even if China applied pressure, even if China was willing to ramp up sanctions, might not work, it strikes me the U.S. needs to provide some guarantees to China. One of which is the U.S., as well as South Korea and Japan, should indicate a willingness to work in caring for any refugees. If the North collapses, if there's a problem of refugees, all countries should be involved. Indeed, Japan has particular interest in refugees. They had ethnic Koreans who went over to North Korea back in the 1960s. Around 100,000 went over. We think there are probably around 300,000, including family today. Japan could even be willing to accept these people back. South Korea would play a major role. There's a large Korean diaspora. It should be clear to China that China would not bear the cost alone. Second, in terms of any military response that might be needed, South Korea in particular should talk and be in, in coordination with China. What happens if North Korea collapses? Who would do what? You know, who would try to keep order? Who would be involved where? These are questions to try to talk about now, as opposed to before a collapse would be imminent. And we have no idea what that collapse might be. It simply might be an implosion of the state. It could be factional fighting. It could be any number of things. Moreover, the U.S. and Japan should indicate that they are, would clearly be willing to support and indeed support economically, if necessary, a Chinese role in, the, in a uh, situation of having to police and deal with a collapsed North Korea. Moreover, I think the U.S. needs to promise, as I indicated earlier, that U.S. bases and U.S. forces would be coming home. In my view, they're not needed today. They're certainly not needed in the case of a reunited, China, a reunited Korea. What the U.S. needs to make very clear to China, if China is willing to do more in terms of trying to resolve the problem in North Korea, the U.S. would not plan on taking economic or geopolitical advantage. And one way to do so and indicate that, I think, would be to con continue a drawdown of U.S. forces in South Korea, indicate that the U.S. is clearly serious about ensuring there will not be any perceived military threat to China in any outcome of a reunited Korea indicate that the, that the U.S. Uh, sees that as being an old issue and one not for China to have to worry about in the future. Moreover, I think there's a very real role for the U.S. to indicate and other Asian countries and even Europeans that Chinese assistance here would be very good evidence of its peaceful rise. China has gone to great lengths to assure other nations that it is not a threat and that its role, its rise, as it said, in Asia is not a threat. One way to demonstrate that would be involved in trying to help eliminate you know, a situation in East Asia, which is both a humanitarian catastrophe as well as geopolitically destabilizing. That is a role that would indicate that other countries could trust China to be a responsible partner in the international system. Finally, I think the U.S. needs to indicate, you know, not so much as a threat but as a possible consequence, that we cannot assume that a nuclear North Korea would be the only new nuclear power if North Korea continues on its present course. <laughs> that from an American standpoint, the options of either you know, constantly defending both all of its allies with nuclear, from any nuclear threat or you know, leaving its allies naked, in essence, second of giving North Korea a nuclear monopoly among secondary powers, would not be a very pleasant option. 
and that the U.S. might not stand in the way if the South Koreans and Japanese, and one could add parenthetically the Taiwanese, decided to move ahead themselves on countervailing nuclear programs. All of those countries have indicated interest at different times. The U.S. has put pressure on those countries uh, to ensure that didn't happen. Indeed, Park Chung-hee's regime under pressure dismantled what appeared to be an incipient program. The point would be the U.S. would not encourage them. The U.S. would not necessarily even provide materials. But what the U.S. would do is it might stand aside if it saw the only option was a large and growing arsenal in nuclear North Korea. And this, of course, would be uh, spreading the pain and spreading the uh, nightmare to China as well as the rest of the region. The point here is that the U.S., in my view, should maintain nonproliferation as its goal, but it needs to indicate the threat of this, the threat of spreading nuclear weapons, is a reason to work harder And it's a reason that should engage the Chinese as well, that it is dangerous for China to assume that nuclear weapons in North Korea would have no impact on China, but rather it could very well set in motion a process where, frankly, there may be other reasons why Japan, particularly the growth of China, might someday want nuclear weapons anyway. North Korea could be a radicalizing influence. We've seen it having an impact on Japanese defense policy already. We could certainly see it having a quantum effect if we see the marrying together of nuclear weapons and uh, missiles in, uh, by North Korea. I want to emphasize here that what was required is negotiation and convincing China. The idea that we can issue a diktat, that we can simply order them about as if they were a third world you know, power of no account, will not work. Indeed, the United States has a lot at stake with China, including a long-term getting along in terms of security terms. And the, the most effective way of turning China into a more hostile power with a bigger military is to try to issue diktats. So the U.S. on this issue does need to make it very clear it sees China as a partner in promoting regional stability and peace, and for that purpose it wants to engage China on this issue and hopes China will engage more fully with North Korea. In some, in North Korea we have a hideous problem. It's a complex, uh, you know, monstrous regime. It's a complex geopolitical struggle. There are no good solutions here. I'm not sure the China card, if we want to call it that, can solve the problem, but it strikes me we have very little option other than to attempt to do so and to play the card and to support it in other ways as we can. Thank you. Thank you all. Thanks to uh, all four speakers for uh, uh, sticking to the time limits. Uh, I didn't even have to really wave my uh, my warnings very uh, ostentatiously. I appreciate that. I'll leave a little bit of time for uh, the audience. And uh, we have just a few quick ground rules here at Cato. You've probably heard them in other places. Uh, wait for the microphone before speaking. Uh, please identify yourself and your affiliation. And uh, in the interest of allowing as many people as possible to ask questions, please avoid long speeches or, at a minimum, uh, phrase your speech in the form of a question. The Jeopardy rule uh, applies. Um, here. Good afternoon. My name is Todd Wiggins. Uh, Mr. Bandow, I'd like to ask you, uh, you, you said something that I thought was very profound out of, out of the entire presentation, and I'd like to ask you about that. You said that there are no good solutions. I'm, is the glass empty or is it full? Half full, half empty, in the sense that either we come together as a world somehow, break down the barriers, or we're looking at potential Armageddon because of the nuclear proliferation that seems to be, again, sweeping the planet. What, what's the way to go? Well, unfortunately, 
the reality of the world strikes me as it's not, it's not easy to come together as a world. You're almost certainly stuck with imperfect solutions. And I think that's what nonproliferation policy almost always is. I mean, let's face it, the, the nonproliferation itself is a bit hypocritical. You know, the major powers have tasted sin and now have decided nobody else can have the uh, forbidden fruit. Well, you know, there's a reason why countries want the forbidden fruit. You know, we had no easy options of stopping, for example, Pakistan and India. So I think one has to try to, you know, then the, the administ- Bush administration has come up with a new agreement with India, sharply criticizing the nonproliferation community. On the other hand, arguably a good geopolitical bargain. So it strikes me that North Korea is a good example when we're dealing with this on Iran and a different set of circumstances, but many of the same issues. North Korea is a good example of where you do need to get regional cooperation and bring countries that have very different interests at stake together because at this case there is an overriding interest that they can cooperate on. And if they don't, they will all be worse off because a large nuclear arsenal in North Korea, I think, threatens the region in fairly dramatic ways. Uh, On the aisle there? Thank you. Uh, Jerry Lipson, uh, Alexandria Republican City Committee. Um, one of the speakers, I think it was Mr. Nitsch, mentioned um, a, um, a menu of what he described as genuine grievances against the United States by uh, North Korea, the recognition issue, some of the other things. And he uh, recommended a rather uh, an extended list of concessions, diplomatic concessions, that he said the United States could make towards uh, North Korea directly uh, to see if they are really serious about dealing with uh, the nuclear issue. And I was just curious because none of the other speakers have have addressed, have come at it from that perspective, and I'm curious to get the reactions of some of the other speakers uh, to those suggestions. Uh, I think that was Ted. So would any of the other three speakers want to weigh in on, on uh, possible concessions? Go ahead, Larry. Certainly there are concessions the United States could offer, and the Bush administration made a number of concessions to the North Koreans during the 2007-2008 Chris Hill-Kim Gi-Gwan bilateral uh, negotiations. Uh, Unfortunately, we ended up with nothing. after making a number of these concessions to North Korea, such as removing them from the terrorism list, uh, ending the financial sanctions policies in April 2007, which was the first major concession the Bush administration made after the February 2007 six-party nuclear agreement. Now, the sequencing of sanctions... I think is very important, and this is a judgmental issue, judging which sanctions to offer at the beginning of a negotiating implementation process versus which concessions to hold back until we get the finality of what we're after uh, in such an agreement, uh, in, in, in such a negotiations uh, implementation of agreements uh, process. This, this this determination of sequencing of sanctions, I think, is very important. And I think, again, I think the Bush administration made some errors in its determination of which sanctions, which concessions to offer early on during that 2007-2008 process versus which ones to hold back 
until the disablement process had been completed at Yangbian. So this is uh, a very important issue. To me, the key concession to really think about in the future is the diplomatic relations card. Should we, as U.S. administrations have stated, several U.S. administrations, hold back diplomatic relations until we get this, in my view, unrealizable agreement for the complete denuclearization of North Korea, or should we rethink offering diplomatic relations with North Korea if we could achieve what it seems to me might be a more realizable, more limited objective in containing certain aspects of their nuclear program, a more limited goal. Should we link diplomatic recognition, normalization of relations to that? And I think that's something, frankly, we need to think about uh, more seriously. Thank you. Ted. Yeah, I've always been a skeptic with regard to the uh, piecemeal, stage-by-stage, tit-for-tat negotiating strategy. I know diplomats like that, and I've regarded it in part as a make-work program for diplomats. Uh, Unfortunately, it's a process that can drag on indefinitely. Um, And in this case, I don't think we have the luxury to do that because the North Koreans seem to be going ahead, continuing to process plutonium, Uh, very likely building a a small but significant number of nuclear weapons. And I can see us still negotiating about which concessions to make on our part in exchange for which concessions from North Korea and then wake up eight or nine or ten years from now with North Korea having a, uh, a significant deployable nuclear arsenal. I think one has to break through that barrier of of mistrust and perhaps deception on the part of North Korea and place all of the concessions on the table, but as part of a package deal. They don't get any of these concessions unless they are prepared to negotiate a reasonable deal on the nuclear issue. Now, we can debate about the specific nature of that nuclear deal. I think we need something very comprehensive. Otherwise, even if we shut down the plutonium program and assuming we can have a system of verification where they can't cheat on that, could we be facing yet another North Korean nuclear crisis a decade or two decades from now with a uranium enrichment program? I think if we're going to have a solution here, we need to have an effective solution. And we're not likely to get that with this uh, agonizingly slow process of dancing around the issues and talking about very limited concessions from both sides. Uh, There's another hand in the back there. There. Why don't you bunch them together? We'll bunch those two questions together. Go ahead. Uh, You're... uh Approach. I'm Doug McPherson. I'm retired. Uh, you're, uh, none of you have much help so far. Ah, sorry. Uh, I'm Doug McPherson. I'm retired. None of you have expressed much hope for any of the procedures going forward. 
I'm curious if uh, Ted in particular has heard anything about very quiet um, proposals, perhaps, uh, for China to take the, uh, the mines and the hydropower in the north, the south to take uh, about another 100 miles uh, the, of, uh, of North Korea, um, and the agreeing elements of the North Korean army um, to be transferred uh, under pay uh, to construction battalions. Uh, this might get some attention in North Korea. Uh, there was another question right behind him, right there. Do you want to go ahead? Or no, I? go. let's bunch these together. And we'll, yeah. All right, Mike Billington. I'm with the Executive Intelligence Review. Um, two related questions. In the North, it, it's pretty apparent that the so-called hardliners are now pretty much in tight control. But I'm wondering what you think about the uh, those layers in the military in the North who were involved in the cooperation, who saw the development of their energy and especially the development of the railroads into Russia and, and China through, from South Korea as to their military benefit. Where, where are they now? How do they stand in the transition and so forth? Um, and secondly, in South Korea, there was some reference to South Korea's uh, huge, uh, fairly large uh, relations with China. But um, Yi Mung-bak is portrayed as a, uh, you know, as a retrograde, as a, as a reactionary in the North. But, but he himself is a builder. He wanted, at least at first, despite being very hardline on nuclear, he wanted to be engaged in developing the infrastructure in the North. Uh, and what are the chances of South Korea and China working together to put up something not just on the nuclear issue but the broader development questions. I do see those questions as somewhat related. Um, uh, Ted, yeah. and maybe Scott. Let me say, first of all, why I am rather pessimistic about a good outcome to the North Korean nuclear issue. Uh, U.S. officials and, and, frankly, the other members of the six-party talks have always said that the North faces a fundamental choice. It can either pursue its, its nuclear program at a cost of uh, suffering ever greater isolation within the international community, or it can give up that program and gradually be integrated into the international community with a variety of benefits. I suspect the North sees matters differently, that it can have both, that if it goes ahead with a nuclear program, acquires a credible deterrent, that it will simply be too dangerous for the international community to continue to isolate a country that is armed with nuclear weapons. And I think that is a correct assessment. This is a very dangerous strategy that we're, we're talking about. Um, the Chinese are increasingly frustrated by what's going on with the North, but Beijing is very reluctant to do anything either unilaterally or in conjunction with the United States and South Korea that might destabilize the North. So I think you're, you're still facing that problem. The level of frustration I encountered in China regarding North Korea on this last trip was, was very dramatic. The Chinese are not happy. Pyongyang has repeatedly ignored Beijing's warnings and requests on uh, missile tests, nuclear tests, a variety of other things. But they're still wary of doing something that, in China's view, might make matters even worse. Uh, so I think that's the, uh, that's the dilemma that we're facing. Uh, everyone seems to recognize, even North Korea supporters in China, now recognize this is an extraordinarily 
obstructionist, difficult regime, they're just not quite certain what to do about that. Scott, do you have a yeah. I think that both of these questions actually refer to what we could call the silver lining in the North Korea situation. And what I mean by that is that there is a force that is really beyond the control of any of the governments, uh, and that is uh, the marketization of North Korea. Uh, we see penetration uh, of North Korea by market forces, uh, and those are forces that the government already is unable to fully control. Uh, if you go up to the border uh, from South Korea or from China, increasingly North Korea just looks like a speed bump on the way to prosperity uh, in Northeast Asia. And those forces are continuously pushing in. I think it's very fair to think about whether or not uh, we can facilitate those forces uh, possibly through development projects. I mean, if the highways that are on either side of North Korea could be completed, I think we'd see uh, an acceleration of, of change inside North Korea. And frankly, in the long term, I believe that the current North Korean leadership, uh, despite its efforts to control those forces, uh, will ultimately find that those forces are actually its greatest enemy. Yeah, I think the role of the military can be a complex one. I mean, militaries are not necessarily against development or modernization. We've seen a lot of third-world countries where they're <clears throat> the most important engines of throwing aside corrupt regimes. I mean, in Turkey, for all the failings of the, the relationship of the military regime, the military to the secular government, and today's government as well, it's, you know, it's always been more open in terms of international involvement. So I think the problem is what we know of the North Korean military, at least the leadership would certainly seem to reinforce the very worst, uh, you know, things. The question, I suppose, is, is there a, a mid-level that might be able to push, you know, other folks aside? And that would be an issue where, again, China might have some, you know, connections, assets, you know, abilities to help in that regard, but it's very hard to know what those might be. And I would certainly see economic cooperation between South and China in, no, in the North, assuming the end of the North Korean regime. Cooperation between those two countries would make an awful lot of sense in terms of developing the North. Uh, there's a question down here. Contessa Bourbon, my name. I'd like to ask this question. Will you recommend that U.S. ask China's help to release two journalists um, prisoners in North Korea? And um, uh, do you think the U.S. cannot impose harsher um, sanctions because of the um, prisoners currently being held in North Korea and this has provided leverage for North Korea? Could you comment on this? Once that. You want to take that one? Uh, Shabi, I, don't, I think the problem is it's very hard for the U.S. to apply sanctions against journalists who apparently were captured in somebody else's country, apparently violating their law. It's very hard. I think certainly the U.S. could request Chinese assistance. I think the, the journalists are almost certainly going to be released. It's a question of timing. And I think the lower key that issue is kept, the better. The more noise we make about it publicly, the higher the price will go for their release. But I think our past experience with pilots and with the young man who swam across the Yalu back in the 1990s is they'll eventually come home, but it's going to be a behind-the-scenes process of negotiation. I think it's going to be more difficult. Uh, <coughs> The 1990 incidents were accidents, and in the case of the young man, uh, you may remember he was mentally unbalanced and committed suicide after he returned here. These women, as Doug alluded to, committed hostile acts against North Korea, what the North Koreans would justify as hostile acts. 
coming across into North Korean test, uh, territory, uh, being photographed with their cameramen uh, inside of North Korea, but most importantly to the North Koreans probably, having contacted the so-called membership of the Underground Railroad, uh, this network in North Korea and China that helps refugees get out of North Korea and ultimately get out of China. And apparently their cell phones, when they were captured, had names of people in the network. So the North Koreans knew that these journalists were colluding, if you will, with this underground network. Thus, the regime's attitude towards these two women, it seems to me, is more hostile than was the case in the two incidents in the 1990s. Perhaps the regime's attitude may be more similar to its attitude towards the Pueblo crew of 1968. Therefore, the, the, the North Koreans are going to, in my view, want a high price from the United States uh, in some sort of big reciprocal package of benefits to North Korea in return for the release of these women. And if we do send an envoy to North Korea, and there still are reports of that in the offing, seems to me the envoy is going to have to have a big offer to lay on the table uh, if there's going to be any real prospect of concluding a deal. I have time for one more question. I have a hand down here. Yes, uh, Dave Fitzgerald, private consultant. I was wondering if any of the panel would want to comment on whether these uh, sanctions under UN Resolution 1874 are really going to be pursued and whether China is going to come forward on those. And we're going to hold China to that in the short term, the next year or so. I understand that we have this envoy that's out there at some point or other coordinating this. But uh, in the past, China has, or North Korea has come back to the six-party talks and everybody says, forget the sanctions. And we're right back to the same old rope of dope we've been doing for the last 16 years. Is this, is this what was going to happen in the next year or two? Anyone have more confidence in sanctions than uh, the past? Despite you know, the suggestions that I made, I'm not optimistic that we're going to be able to move China very far. Moreover, as I alluded to, to me, the key issue in sanctions is the air traffic between North Korea and Iran. This deep collaborative relationship between North Korea and Iran, I believe, earns the North Koreans upwards of $2 billion every year. The relationship is multifaceted uh, and very profitable to the North Koreans. It's also, I think, one of the most dangerous things the North Koreans do, uh, potentially uh, affecting our interest in the support it is giving to Iran. I don't think the Chinese are going to be willing, really, to interrupt this air traffic link. And to me, that is really the key as to whether these sanctions put any real bite into the North Korean military and the North Korean elite. I'll just say that I think that uh, from the Chinese perspective, the purpose of implementing sanctions will be to get the North Koreans back to the table 
but we really haven't had any conversations thus far about what the Chinese would do after they come back to the table, and that may be the critical leverage that one would need in order to ensure that, that the talks actually make progress. Yeah, that is a key point. I think in terms of enforcing sanctions to get the North back to the six-party talks, China may be more cooperative than it has been before. The Chinese certainly seem angrier with North Korea than they have ever been before. But I also suspect that if the North Koreans again say, all, all right, we, we will come back to the six-party talks, that may very well be enough for Beijing once again to retreat about any seriousness concerning sanctions. And again, don't forget the issue of a probable impending succession in Pyongyang and the incentive that has for China to go very slowly, to not do anything that might be seen as unduly disruptive. I think that's going to be the broader context for the next several months and maybe even the next year or two. All right. Well, thank you all very much. Uh, please join me in a round of applause for our panelists. Um, uh, <clears throat> I thank all of you for attending. Please join us upstairs uh, in the Winter Garden for uh, lunch. Thank you.